I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine deputy editor Tom Hocking and writer Harry Pearson. Please consider becoming a member of our supporters club on Patreon. From just £1.55 per month, you'll get access to bonus episodes plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash Comes. There are some brilliant letters, as usual, in issue 396 of When Saturday Comes. This debate about can you support two teams or not seems to rumble on. I guess it goes into the area of of soft spots, inexplicable as they sometimes are. I've always had a soft spot for Sampdoria, who I mentioned in the previous episode, partly because I had a Sabutio team of them, and I I really liked their kit when I was was younger. Marseille in France, because of Chris Waddle, um, I, I always liked 1960, 1860, sorry, Munich um, in Germany because they were the blue team in the city. So it's, 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 I always, rather than have sort of soft spots for, for teams in, in England or, or the mm. UK, I tend to sort of have a different team in each country. Um, I think it can yeah. come as well from meeting someone you like and you remember them by that team, even if you never see them again. And if you hear their results and think of, mm. of them, that's a, a sort of soft spot, I suppose. Yeah, but I, I was, when I was a boy, my mum went to buy me two football, my first football shirts. But instead of buying me like a Middlesbrough shirt, it was just plain red, which my mum obviously thought was a bit boring. So she bought me instead one in red and white stripes and one in blue and white stripes. But the red and white stripe one, which you think might have been Sunderland, in those days, Sunderland had red collar and cuffs on their shirt. And this had white collar and cuffs, which was Stoke City. So I always took an interest in Stoke City during the glory days of Tony Waddington, of course. But the blue and white one might have been Huddersfield, but wasn't. It was actually Kilmarnock. So I'm always thrilled when I go on the very long train journey to Glasgow. You can get the direct train and it goes through Kilmarnock. I also have a soft spot for the Killies. Another debate that rumbles on is the keeper of the cup prompted by your column a few issues ago. More letters. 
I know, it's, it's one of those, it's a weird thing when you write something that probably gets lots of letters, not hostile ones, obviously, but, you know, nice letters. You sort of, it seems like a bit, it seems like a bigger achievement than actually doing some, doing some work yourself. <laughs> but one of the, one of the, one of the letters asked the question of why the Keeper of the Cup was necessary. And I do remember that around the time that I first encountered him, there were a lot of trophy thefts in the North East, because the first time I saw him was at Bedlington. And or um, well, the first time, the only time I've seen him, I say the first time. The, the only time I've seen him was at yeah. was at Bedlington, and um, there were a number of things because the Thomas Lipton Trophy, the first World Cup, was stolen from West Auckland, and I think also the Northern League Trophy as well was stolen. When these two cups went missing, I remember there was speculation that they'd been stolen for a collector. <laughs> And I imagine the sort of person who collects football trophies. <laughs> but how does he pass them off when people come round? Oh, you know, here's the European Cup uh, that I won in 1968. <laughs> um, Tom, what else is in issue 396 of WSC? Uh, well, on, on the subject of cups, obviously um, we've got uh, Roger Titford writing about um, the FA Cup. Um, potentially of abolishing replays. Um, is the FA Cup now pointless? Um, I, it's something that he wrote about uh, many years ago, maybe twenty years ago, um, and he's sort of looking back at it. He's looking at ways of of making the FA Cup more interesting, and it's it's partly to do with the idea that um, the biggest teams don't care about their uh, responsibility to the rest of, of football. Really, um, the idea that the FA Cup's an inconvenience. Well, they they still win the trophy. Um, but it, it means a lot to the, the smaller team. So he's sort of exploring that issue quite mm. a lot. Um, and there's a, a accompanying article by Will Simpson about um, endless replays, uh, which focuses on uh, Arsenal v Liverpool in 1980, uh, the semi-final. Um, but the previous year, which isn't mentioned in the article, uh, Arsenal had played Sheffield Wednesday in a, in a third-round game that went to four replays, um, which they've, they uh, they drew at Hillsborough, which is a famous famous clip of um, Pat Jennings being pelted with snowballs um, from the cop, uh, drew, drew down at Highbury and then three replays at Filbert Street um, within a very short space of time. Now, I, don't know, I don't know if you've, you've got any other stories of, of particularly te- sort of long-running FA Cup games that you, you've had to be at. But, the one etched yeah. in all Middlesbrough supporters is the Everton, the Everton game yes. of the late 80s. Mm. Yes, yeah, so several, several people my dad worked with actually left you know, when Middlesbrough were losing with a few, they they left to get away. You know, to 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 avoid the traffic, only to find that they'd equalise in the last minute. So yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic. But those were actually good games, weren't they? Because I think mm. some of the we tend to sort of think like you know, like the replay of the the Leeds Chelsea FA Cup final, the replay because those were both real kind of epic games. But then the she- there were the replays of the Sheffield Wednesday Arsenal. Supposedly they were quite good. There was one that ended three all. So I think yeah, it was, yeah, and, so and yeah, Wednesday but... were very much underdogs in that mm. game. So the, to, to take them um, to, to so many replays was quite impressive. I I'd love to know time. what managers say in the third and fourth yeah. game because can't just get any more guidance. Yeah. <laughs> There's no new dossier on the opposition. <laughs> it's the same fellow. Well, the famous um, the amateur cup t- uh, final between Bishop Auckland and Crook in the fifties that went to three replays. And the last replay was at Ayrton Park, and it was actually only about three days after the previous replay kicked off at sort of six thirty, and they were told that there would be no because the players were practically exhausted because they actually all worked as well because they were amateurs and they did all work, and they were told that if it was level at the end, they would actually share the trophy. But Cook won. <laughs> Jurgen Klopp would be furious. With <laughs> <his anxiety. laughs> but I'm not. Um, like, why not? Why not share the trophy? That sort of seemed like a good idea. Yeah. I 
Um, that, that trophy well, dealer might be. He <laughs> might. He doesn't want half of it. Have something to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I just think the idea of abolishing replay it really takes something out of it because mm. one of the one of the excitements of the FA Cup is that a draw can be a, a real, really big deal for a, for a small team. I remember when, um, when obviously Chesterfield got to a, a game against Middlesbrough. Um, I was at Hillsborough watching a Sheffield Wednesday game and they were showing the score. They, it was it 3 all in the end mm-hmm. that day. And I remember when, when Chesterfield scored, like everyone in the stadium, and Chesterfield are local teams, Sheffield Wednesday, obviously, and there wasn't particularly animosity from Wednesday fans towards Chesterfield and actually ended up supporting them quite, quite heavily in that stadium. Like a stadium, the, the game we were watching was pretty boring. So mm-hmm. we were just watching the score updates on the scoreboard. And like the idea that... that that three all could then lead to. I know they lost the replay, but it, it's really exciting. So, so I think it'd be a real. It's shame a wonderful to lose thing, them. and it yeah. would it would lose the phrase "money spinning replay." As well, it certainly would, and that would be the football. biggest loss of the <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Got um, Cameron Carter going to Gala Ferry Dean um, with its brilliant brutalist stand. Mm. Um, but but my favourite part of, of the article is that he he walks in on sort of the directors. Um, and staff members like club secretary and stuff like that actually watching uh, the Golden Gordon episode of Ripping Yarns, which I think <laughs> is, is such a cliche within a cliche that um, it's sort of the, the brilliant idea that they're, they're all sitting around watching that. Uh, another piece we've got um, is our object lessons column this this month by Paul Buller about um, a teddy bear dressed in a, in a Norwich shirt, which he bought for his son uh, when his son was born. It sort of reignited his own love of football, not not just the teddy bear itself, but the, the act of taking <laughs> yeah. um, his son uh, to a game. It got me wondering if you had any football-related cuddly toys in, in your younger days, or now. I, all I remember that was cuddly of, of a club shop variety was a cushion in the shape of the green away strip from 1994 that I had inexplicably. Treasure possession, clearly. <laughs> well, I think about taking a child to football, because a friend of mine is a Blackburn Rovers fan. His, his son was about five and he took him to a Blackburn Rovers game and he said that after, like literally after three minutes, his son just burst into tears. And when he said, why are you crying? He said, why are the men so angry? And they had to take him away because he was just terrified. We should kind of see. I remember my daughter, my daughter goes to a lot of games with me, but a couple of seasons ago, just waiting to say something as children do and then coming out quite loudly with why is everyone here bald and there were three <laughs> men in a row with bald heads who looked very much like they could kick me in quite badly yeah. so it was a nervous second half absolutely no filter no, <laughs> tremendous final one I'll mention is Joe Haining about uh, Boovan Crescent mm. um, and York leaving <laughs> finally maybe the time of writing the article um, we, we thought they were going to be leaving at the end of January start of February and, and that's rolled on. Um, this has been going on. They've, they've been trying to leave the stadium for about 20 years, which is a real shame because mm. Boovham Crescent is wonderfully weird ground, um, which I'm sure it's we'll majestic. Talk about. It, it, it is. It's one of my um, favourite. I think. I think what sums up how long it's how long it's being drawn out is that I, I actually went to a game against Chester a couple of weeks ago because I thought it might be my last chance to go to Boovham Crescent because I, I grew up in York and went to a lot of games when I was younger. And their commemorative scarves were actually uh, said Boovham Crescent 1932 to 2019. So they're already out of date because it's already <laughs> drawn out for so long. But Boovham Crescent, obviously, with the wonderful innovation of having their executive boxes facing the car park, 
Um, which, not sure, not sure whose idea that was. The terrible away end toilets. Um, it's one of the few grounds where I've been in all four stands mm. actually, because I've been an away fan uh, friendly for Sheffield Wednesday, and I've also they've still got the lovely antiquated system of paying a pound, uh, a pound extra to transfer yeah. from the the David Longhurst Terrace into the um, popular stand. Incredible, the yeah. protracted move. I mean, imagine if this was a, a house move, you would pull out of the chain quite soon. You, you absolutely on would. And I mean, and on. And on. Um, uh, and, and where they're moving to is, I, I obviously don't want to judge too soon, but I, I, it's, it's a bit of an out-of-town ground that I really will lose the feel of moving credits. I'll be quite sad to see that. I had a lot of birthday parties there when I was a kid. Yeah. So, well, One interesting thing about moving Crescent, though, it, well, it was used as the Berlin Olympic Stadium for a Bollywood film about India's first um, Olympic medal. Which I think came, the, the actual Olympic medal came years later, but it was I haven't seen the film, um, but um, apparently it was yeah. The, uh, fans turned up and there was just lots of people in in Nazi uniforms walking around the stadium, <laughs> um, and lots of film crews and it. Yeah, it, it was used used as a Berlin Olympic stadium. So yeah, a lot of fun memories of Budapest. Not that one particularly. I wasn't there for that. Um, another story that I, I'm afraid this is a second-hand story. It's not something I witnessed myself, but. Um, York's uh, mascot is a lion and apparently he was he was quite late to a game once and um, came cycling in in full lion um, <laughs> uniform um, to large cheers from the crowd as he cycled in and locked his bike up and then <laughs> got on with his, his business as the game was going on. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll miss Boobin Crescent a lot mm. when it finally goes, if it goes. It's so, interesting yeah. that we're going to discuss commentators later on in the podcast. It's interesting that both Guy Mowbray and John Champion grew up and watching York I think one of them went to Shipton Street School in fact mm. I don't know if that, that's had some sort of bearing on their careers Possibly. <laughs> I mean, in it's the... interesting when I when I went to this game at, at Boothan Crescent uh, someone someone mentioned on Twitter a, a Sheffield Wednesday fan mentioned that he he went to this school uh, behind the the ground and and it got me thinking that it must have been really exciting if there was a professional football in your playground after on a, mon- yeah. on a Monday morning after someone had booted it over from the Jason match like one of the most exciting things that could happen in school would be like a proper mighty uh, football from yeah Wayne Hall's left foot exactly uh, and then and I was glad to see the piece was illustrated by some photographs by uh, Tony Cole who's I'm so glad has documented the the slow death of the ground yeah he he's done some fantastic photos and we, we used a very very small selection of them in the um, in the article, but uh, he, he's got a book for sale as well, which is, is well worth looking it's at. It's a lovely and thing. He's I think worth it's following more, on Twitter as yeah, well. Yeah, I, the, the club put a, a, a web story up a few weeks ago asking anyone interested in buying parts of the ground to say what they would like to buy. That's quite a hard thing because I've emailed with a few things I would like to buy, <laughs> but I just it's a really hard thing. If when Middlesbrough left Ayrson Park, they had an actual auction list, where I was just thinking, oh, I'd quite like. Uh, some soap dishes from the executive <laughs> box. It's quite hard. What, would, what do you want, apart from turnstiles? Yeah, I mean, the, the floodlights, maybe. Yeah, it depends. They also, they're, 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 they're not putting any price on it. So, no, you know, so the thing. It's, yeah. it's just like a blind bid. You do any bidder. Yeah. You've got four floodlights. I've got four I've floodlights got ground. for 37 <laughs> quid. I'm going to rebuild the ground. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then obviously we've got Harry's column as well. So. Yeah, what did you write about this time? I wrote about I was at, I was at a game with a with a friend, an old friend of mine from his abandoned Middlesbrough, like as I have, uh, <laughs> and I noticed that he's done this thing where you you get nostalgic and then you start to become nostalgic for things that you hated at the time, <laughs> even even stuff you really disliked. And I noticed quite a lot of people put these memes up on Facebook and t- sort of saying this thing of remember when we all drowned in garden ponds and we had chill brains. 
and the, no one believed us about the choir master. That was how I grew up, and that was when Britain was great, you know. And he's become a bit like that, as a sort of like sort of the uh, you know Ustonle Ricketts downtown or something. I don't know. So I thought it was like sort of nausea nostalgia, called like the pining for the diseases of yesteryear. Um, yeah, because he, he was he is particularly vexed by by a defender. He, he particularly applauded a defender just basically hoofing the ball into some brambles, which he claimed he never saw anymore in, in up in the upper tiers of football. That was one of the things they could do with the FA Cup to make it take it back to its glory years is just have nineteen seventies refereeing. <laughs> because then, because I, I was, you know, someone I was thinking, well, why do the big clubs? Yeah, they don't take it seriously. They field a second team, and yet they still win it. Well, they didn't in the seventies, and that was because the little teams, the smaller teams, could just basically boot them, couldn't they? Just give them a good booting, good old hoofing there. Right. But they're not allowed to do that anymore. More, <laughs> more solutions for football. <laughs> now we're out of the EU. That's right. Well, exactly. We won't have to listen to them anymore now. We won't have to listen to UEFA and their directives anymore. Now we can go back to our old uppies and downies football, where I gouge you. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. Okay. I'll leave it up to you. For absolutely no reason, I'd quite like for us to have a chat about acting footballers. Some players have made film careers after retirement. Some have appeared on things while still playing. Is this limited to cinema and television, or am I missing some stellar stage careers? Maybe Kevin Pressman's Hamlet is must-see. Actually, I've always thought Roy Hodgson would make a good character in a Harold Pinter play. An angry guest house owner, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they do tread the boards, footballers, though. No, and because of course cricketers and other, and other sports people got involved in panto, didn't they? Like Ian Botham and Frank Bruno and people like that. But football panto is kind of in the football season, isn't it? A bit hard for them to nip out quickly. Oh, you know, oh, damn, I, forgot, I, forgot to, yeah. I forgot to, I forgot to, I forgot to change out of my widow twanky costume and ended up playing whole half. So what about then football acting careers on screen? Uh, Mel Sterland, uh, Sheffield Wednesday legend, captain the team. Um, Had a troubled post-career, didn't he? Yeah, well, his his book is called Boozing, Betting and Brawling, so uh, make of that what you will. (laughs) But he actually played uh, Sheffield United's captain in the film When Saturday Comes, no relation, obviously, which I thought was particularly galling for Sheffield Wednesday fans to have to see see one of their heroes on screen in, in a film all about the team that they don't like, where he's... Not just uh, not just an extra, but he is the captain of, of that team. <laughs> and I thought that until uh, I watched the trailer to Shot of Glory, where Ali McCoist is uh, wearing a Celtic shirt. So, is it? Oh, yeah. right. oh he claims yeah, he claims yeah. he wore something else underneath, so it wouldn't yeah. touch his skin. Fantastic, because <laughs> because one of the lines in uh, Shot at Glory or Shot of Glory or whatever, his girlfriend or wife says, "Football's about healing divisions, not creating them." And he goes, he played for Sally <laughs> <Tyler> McQuist. <laughs> Does he got that message in, it's in Scotland? <laughs> Where have you got that idea from? But the fantastic now is Robert Duvall. I thought he's he's one of the greatest supporting actors in the history of Hollywood. He's in like he's in you know, he's in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Godfather films. He's in Bullet. He's like acting with Robert Redford, Steve McQueen. <laughs> And, and, Paul there Newman, a, and there he is, Martin Brando, and Ali McCoy. <laughs> and then he winds up at Boghead Park, the home of Dumbarton. <laughs> <laughs> he does affect a particularly uh, strange Scottish accent as well. I think um, that lifts McCoy's performance. I thought Ali McCoy's actually pretty good in it. The person, Ali, Andy Gray, plays Andy Gray in it rather unconvincingly. <laughs> I have to say. Well, that takes a special kind of acting to make <laughs> it, it look like you're acting. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> 
it's a it's it's hard to find the uh, shot of glory actually it's not on youtube that the trailer is must watch i have to say scotland's most notorious star soccer player has been chosen to boost the town's struggling team. This guy is going to give us the punch we need, Gordon, to make him win the cup. Don't you want to win a cup? Teams win the cup, Peter. Not prima donnas reminiscing their past glories. This is a real chance for Kilnocky. Academy Award winner Robert Duvall, <laughs> Michael Keaton, and introducing Ali McCoy's this is our shot at glory, lads. All right? All right? A shot at glory. Because Michael Keaton's in it as the, uh, as the owner of the club, isn't he, mysteriously? So often there's bits in films. I noticed in the uh, recent series of Succession, there's a bit in that when the Americans in it, it's basically it's based on the sort of Rupert Murdoch thing, it's an HBO series, very good with Brian Cox, but they buy Heart of Midlothian. And then there's that fantastic bit when... They go in and they give a speech to the players, and it's like, who wrote this speech? Because one of the guys, the guy who doesn't know anything about football, who's Macaulay Culkin's brother, he he just does a sort of American soccer ball speech because he, he knows it. But then the other guy who apparently knows about football says it's all about getting the secondary possession or something. He's just like, <laughs> what is he talking about? The players all have to stand and look at. Him. If it is the Hearts players who are standing looking at him, going, what, what? Who wrote this stuff? What? <laughs> Although you can imagine that some some owners would be so clueless about football that they, well, it's perfect, that it yes, might it's actually reasonable. Be it's perfectly reasonable. Actually, it's probably realistic. It's probably written like that. Just just imagine the Glazers going into to the Old Trafford <laughs> dressing room and saying something like that. <laughs> I suppose most famously we know, of course, Eric Cantona and Vinnie Jones are the obvious ones. I hadn't realised that Stan Collymore was at the start of Basic Instinct 2 until I started reading up for this. Really? Well, fantastic. I'm glad it got <laughs> I had to watch that one for the first time. <laughs> yeah, Frank LeBeuf, as well, was quite serious about acting and actually attended the Lee Strasberg Institute in West, West Hollywood, I think. And he does appear in, um, in the, the, uh, the Stephen Hawking biopic, playing a doctor. So not not you know because normally footballers are cast as footballers, <laughs> but doctor, yeah, you know, doctor, well, not doctor, well, I don't know what I don't know the part he's playing, but I mean the sort of extraordinary news that I have is that Paul Breitner made a spaghetti western, but not a spaghetti western because it's actually a German western. So <laughs> it was described on an international movie database as a schnitzel western. <laughs> <laughs> because because a bit like the local paper making <laughs> Carbone and Palo de Cano. I don't I think that was in a previous podcast. <laughs> yeah. I realized. Um, <laughs> they appear with spaghetti and pizza. That schnitzel is what people think of the Germans. I don't know. It could have been a dump or a dumpling western. Anyway, he appeared in. It was called in Germany. It was called potato fritz. I don't know why would it be called potato fritz in Germany. That's an English name, isn't it? <laughs> Kartoffeln Fritz. Fritz in Germany. But it was in America, it was released as something, it's Montana something. It's with Hardy Kruger playing, plays a potato farmer who relocates to the west of in, in the, the Midwest or the West and is attacked by bandits. And Paul Breitner plays Sergeant Stark, one of his men who defend, who they fight off the bandits. And was that the start and end of his career? Or no, he appeared in a, he appeared, that was in 1976, and he appeared in another film, with a sort of a, with a, which is called Kunyonga, Maud in Africa. That's obviously its German title. In 1984, it's a, described as an action comedy, which pretty much sums up <laughs> Paul Breitner, really. <laughs> 
big gap between jobs there. He was, he was resting between, for a while. Yeah, he was a big gap between jobs. But other, Just uh, waiting for the right role. You might like remember The Little World of Don Camillo, which I think was a, it was a series on ITV, perhaps, which is about a priest, an Italian priest, who is in a small town where the mayor's a communist, and it's about a sort of. It was written in. The, it's based on a novel that was written in the fifties. It's about the sort of conflict between a Catholic priest and this communist mayor. And there was a film of that made in nineteen eighty three, The World of Don Camillo, and for some reason it it ends with the mayor and the priest both picking two foot a football team and playing against each other. And so there's the sort of communist team who play in red and there's the church team who play in blue. And the church team features Roberto Boninsegna, who people would remember from the Italy team of 1970. I think he played the 1970 World Cup final. And the communist team, Carlo Ancelotti. But the greatest of all footballers turned actors, if you can stay awake. <laughs> As you flick through the ten pages, tell us about your next book. Is <laughs> the Finnish international Ake Lindman, who is a defender, who played as an international for Finland, and in 1960, Swindon Town tried to sign him, but he turned them down to concentrate on his acting. And he appeared in dozens. He was like a serious actor, appeared in dozens of films, mainly in Finland, but he's also in Warren Beatty's Reds with uh, alongside Darren Keaton. And he's in The Billion Dollar Brain, which Ken Russell directed with Michael Caine as the, the uh, Harry Palmer film. And then he's also in, recent, more recently, he's dead now, sadly, but he was in the film called The Hunters, probably the best Swedish crime film about reindeer poachers you'll ever see. I have watched it, it's a good one. And that's Ake Lindman, the greatest football actor of all time, unless you know of someone else. I, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's anyone that good. Uh, all, all I can tell you is that Zinedine Zidane was in Asterix and Obelix at the Olympic Games, uh, which won the uh, worst French film made in 2007. <laughs> um, he, I'll, I'll have you know, I have watched the clip in which he, he's acting. Uh, What's he's, his name in it? What, um, I, I can't I'll work out what his name there. is. Right. But, uh, he's, he's dressed in full Egyptian gear uh, with quite heavy eye makeup. That, and that's not... a slightly French thing, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah, because he's like, yeah. not, he's really but Egyptian. I, I, yeah, <laughs> and I don't really know why. Uh, and then he's, he's keeping the ball away from a very short character with some keepy-uppies before passing the ball to a very tall basket player called Tony Parker. I assume, this is where the YouTube clip ends, but I assume the, the basketball player then keeps it above this this short character. And I did not it's a watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I did not watch the film to find out what happens next. So. I remember a number of walk-on parts in children's television, and I thought I'd imagined Gary Mabbott being in a programme called The Queen's Nose, but I hadn't, and it is there for all to see oh, on I used to YouTube. watch that. My daughter was really keen on The Queen's Nose. Yeah, to do with a coin that had magic powers. It was a Dick King Smith book, actually. I remember um, reading it to my daughter not, not long ago. And yeah, the 50p, you rubbed the nose and it had wishes. I don't know if she wished for Gary Mabbott to appear or not. <laughs> it's hard to imagine he would, but he did it anyway. <laughs> well, that wasn't much good, was it? Why didn't Gary Mabbott turn up? That's what I want to know. Gary Mabbott? I suppose he was the other player, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. Oh, sure. Look, listen, if Gary Mabbott turned up here, I'll give you a fiver. Taking my name in vain. You must be Harmony. <laughs> yes, and Tom. And this is Tom. Hello, Tom. Pleased to meet you. Not a talkative type, eh? No. But you're Gary Mabbott. And you're short of a fiver. I'll take American Express. <laughs> okay, Tom. We're gonna plan our tactics. Right, here's what we do. 
think Robbie Fowler was in Children's Ward because that is something that teeters on the brink of my mind as being a truth. Well, well another program which I used to watch with my daughter when she was little was Hero to Zero, which had Michael Owen in it, where he was about a boy and he had a poster of Michael Owen on his wall, and when he was having problems. Michael Owen would sort of appear and give him life advice. He would sort of be bullied at school. <laughs> he, would say, people. Yeah. he would say, he would, Michael Owen would appear, oh, well, the best thing to do if you're being bullied at school is, I don't know, they buy a timeshare villa in Dubai. Something like that. <laughs> it only ran to six episodes. <laughs> oh, sorry, I can't see anyone. My hamstring's gone. <laughs> Michael Owen famously um, basically bullied a, a, a young goalkeeper in a TV show, didn't he? Neville Southall was trying to teach um, a very young goalkeeper how, how to play goal and it was sort of a competition that he got to save shots from Michael Owen uh, and Michael Owen just just went for it he just full on like, what, what I was just wrist? smashing the ball past this kid and sort of going pick that one out and stuff like that very famously sort of showed no mercy for this small child in goal you've um, reminded me of Gaza's soccer school in the early 90s at the height of Gaza mania where Gaza and about a dozen kids at Wembley Stadium narrated by Tony Robinson for some reason this wasn't Gaza playing a character he was coaching these kids and I always remember him having the obscure reference of calling a kid that had glasses Joe 90 he kept going how are you Joe 90 <laughs> Stick it in. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the child had no idea who Joe Nighty was. Gaza couldn't have had any idea That's who Joe Nighty was. He's too young to remember Joe Nighty. <laughs> There's a, there's a slight divergence in terms of sort of children's TV shows. Uh, I don't know if any of you watched Murphy's Mob uh, back in the day, but Vicarage Road was the ground that was used. Um, and Must Vicarage, be the new maiden head. Yeah. <laughs> Vicarage Road was also originally used um, as Harchester United's ground in Dream Team until they later moved to the new den. Oh, uh, I, I, have new got, den. I have got a Harchester United scarf. Have because you? I wrote the backstory for Harchester United. Um, I wrote the Harchester United story oh. for the for the film company. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's so that the so that they could refer back to their cup achievements. Wow. Well, there's there's now a very detailed Wikipedia page, probably based on your writing. I have to look it up. Yeah. What, what? <laughs> See if they got anything right. Oh, I should go and get my scarf out in yeah. a minute. It's just I sometimes wear it when I'm walking the dog, and people always ask me what team is that, and I say, when I say Harchester United. They are completely baffled. <laughs> I think. I think in the when they were filming the show, the the actual match clips I think tended to be Chelsea games, because that always used to really bug me when I watched it when I was younger. Because um, obviously the ground was clearly the den, and uh, and yet the the games and the actual match clips were were clearly Stamford Bridge. I think because um, they used to colour the yeah. players in or something. Yeah, they, they used they to because because blue. Yeah, yeah they, so they chose blue, and then it was easier to change to purple. Oh. Um, but yeah, it was it was just it was clearly not the same stadium, and that that, that lack of continuity frustrated me so much that I went into sub editing football magazines. <laughs> and now you've um, rated the wrong. Yes, clearly. <laughs> There's another lurch of footballers into presenting, and I think of John Fashion you doing Gladiators. And now Dion Dublin in Homes Under the Hammer, which still just takes me by surprise every time I see it. It's, it's very strange, isn't it? Because I remember that um, the the cricket story of the cricketer Mark Nicholas. He used to present something like Ready Steady Cook, and he was like, "What? Why? You know, what, how did you settle on a, the ex captain of Hampshire to do this job? You know, and that was before he was on Sky. I mean, now he's on Sky of cricket coverage, but that was before that. That was like his audition. Someone thing. saw something in him. So they saw something in Mark <laughs> Nicholas's sort of bland, middle-class, slightly good-looking man. 
There's a fantastic Wade. clip someone's put together on YouTube of Dion Dublin um, and his catchphrase, which seems to be at the top of the stairs. Going up to your bedroom. On my right side, you've got the stairs going up to the bedrooms. There's your stairs straight in front of you going to the bedroom. Stairs just there going up to the bedroom. Got your stairs going up to the bedroom. Harry, you contacted me recently to say that you've been thinking a lot about snoods. <laughs> Do you wear one when you're at Northern League games? I, I know, I've never worn a snood. I, I've never worn snoods or scorts. <laughs> Any of those. Why would I wear a scort? I don't know. When, I was play, when I'm playing netball, obviously, that'd be where I would wear it. Or hockey. You have a good height for netball. Get, yeah, well, that's, yeah, thank you. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> true. What about football trends more generally then? There's, from well, the, the, from snood, the snood backwards. The snood was, I have some idea that Carlos Tevez wore a snood, but he already looked like an extra <laughs> from the name of the rose. So with a snood on, for goodness sake, who told him that was a good look? That was, must have been a player's sort of jug. Oh, put this on. Like put this a, on. Put put this horse collar on, <laughs> Carlos. That would be a scarf on a toad. <laughs> <laughs> but the other funny thing was, uh, people remember the the external nasal dilator strip. <laughs> Uh, as he was known that's a, that was, <laughs> that's technical a name so he yeah. just came up as that's his proper name I never really the nose strips that footballers <laughs> used to wear which I think American footballers NFL players still wear them I think mm. although they, they said to have no effect even UEFA said that they've got no effect at all because actually when you start running around you don't breathe through your nose you breathe through your mouth so actually having your nose dilated mm. Of course, one of the famous, the most famous wearer of it was Robbie Fowler. Mm. Second um, mention. I leave that. I leave <laughs> that there. I yeah. park that there for, for wise when Saturday comes. Listeners, I know what I'm talking about. Now. Um, and then cycling shorts as well, yeah. which were you know which were very popular and worn by players who never ran at all. <laughs> Paul Wilkinson. Paul Wilkinson was exactly the example of it. A man who, as a man standing behind me once said, couldn't catch rain in a bucket. And uh, you know. He was extraordinarily slow. It sort of reminded me of when in the 70s, uh, boys who got car, got their first car used to paint a stripe down the side of it. You, you could paint a stripe, and they were called go-faster stripes. And that, those cycling shorts were the equivalent of that. To his credit, he used to match them to the colour of shorts. Well, you had to. It's illegal was not it? to, because I was at a Northern League game Bloody once. EU. Like the EU. <laughs> it was. It's just political correctness gone mad. It's health and safety and political correctness both combined in an insane moment. But I was at a Northern League game where the guy had cycling shorts on that didn't match his shorts, and the referee made him take them off. And he, he took them off on the pitch. Obviously, so incensed, he took them off on the pitch, and he had nothing on underneath. So he's literally standing there, bottomless, on the field at Whitley Bay. <laughs> So, you know, so that's, that showed the ref. Well, it literally did, actually. It showed, showed everyone. It was quite a cold day as well. He wasn't his best look, I didn't mean. But anyway. <laughs> and then there was all these really weird health things as well. There's been some strange... Where, where managers would direct the squad in some theory. Some strange medical theory that football... Because football's all based on just something that a man down the pub told them it is it still even though now it's got a more scientific name and I was thinking that um, Andy Gray getting another mention now he famously prawns seem to particularly uh, upset managers except in Norway referring back to a previous <laughs> podcast there um, because Andy Gray said that he, he once he was once ordered a prawn cocktail when he was playing for the Scotland team I need to be told off by Jock Steen. He said, you're from Drum Chapel. You'll, you'll have broth like everyone else, <laughs> like the rest of us. And Bill McGarry, and then, and then on a similar note, Bill McGarry at Wolves had also told the players off 
for eating for ordering prawn cocktails, saying, you eat what I eat and I don't eat that. Because he had a theory that prawns weakened their stomach muscles. I also used to... Used to Based on something from down the pub. Again. Down the pub, <laughs> yeah. a man down the pub had told him. And he also used to ration the bread rolls. They were only allowed to have one bread roll at the same time because he believed, again, that that would weaken, would weaken their, their, core, their core muscles. It's the and in the more recent era. I remember when John Tigana went to Fulham, and one of the things they said he'd revolutionised was he, he makes the players go to see a dentist. That's extraordinary. extraordinary. It's slightly dentist. concerning that they don't yeah. already the go the to holistic, a dentist. Was this you know, it's like you move house. Yeah. You've got to get around. This was holistic dentistry, wasn't it? That the idea and Gerard Houllier was keen on that as well. I think it was a bit of a French thing because Arsenal. I think Arsene Wenger and Steven Gerrard had a persistent sort of hamstring injury. And Gerard Houllier said that you need to have his wisdom teeth taken out because he said that your teeth affect the alignment of your spine. And I remember reading this at the time. And it's one of those things because a Frenchman said it. All the all the all of the all of the reports reported it as if oh you know he's brought this new scientific approach and he's cured. And I've got a friend who's a professor of medicine, a very senior professor of medicine. I went and I said. I've read this, and I, is, it, is it possible that it could be true? And he looked at me like I was the biggest moron that he'd ever seen, because the very idea that this could actually affect your hamstring or your spine. He said, how would the teeth affect the alignment of your spine? What weight is pressing from your t- you know... So no, you, like, the, the mistake you've made there is asking experts. You should have just gone. You should have just gone. If you just go down the pub, you'll find yeah, exactly. Out. You'll find that <laughs> a man in the pub will say, "Never." We don't want to listen to experts. <laughs> so Michael Gove style. Now we're out of the EU. We don't need to listen to these experts. We can cure groin strains by cleaning our ears out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so yeah, so the holistic. But of course, it goes back as well to the old days of the monkey glands. Yes. The famous mm. the, uh, the, the 1939 Cup Final, Wolves versus Portsmouth, the Monkey Gland Final. <laughs> the White House Final, the Monkey Gland Final. <laughs> the Monkey Gland Final. And the monkey, but the monkey glands, there was somehow, I think there must have been a sort of early experimentation with steroids because they were supposed to be based on the testicles of a monkey. There were sort of extracts from monkey testicles that were then injected into the players. And you could tell that. When they started swinging from the goalpost, can you? <laughs> <laughs> Throwing their own excrement at the referee. Um, but anyway, so I think the testosterone idea and steroids, I can mm. see there was some link between that. But yeah, Major Frank Buckley, he was the big exponent of monkey glands. Beyond the medicinal uh, theories and things, some of the other trends I've written down are Leeds tassels. Oh, the, t- the tags, the little tags yeah. on the socks. I remember yeah. seeing those on a video and thinking, what an innovation and why? Did they have to take them off before the game? Because so I don't think you could have played it. I do remember them because they were a bit like the ones that Boy Scouts used to have on their <laughs> socks. They used to have a little green flag. If only they brought neckerchiefs and togs as well. Exactly, yes. And, they do, and then they used to gather up their tracksuit, didn't they? I don't that. And they used to do the waving thing, Lee, didn't yeah. they? They went in the centre circle and waved with the tags on the socks. Because they, the they had their numbers on. Maybe that's that's why they uh, stick in in my mind. I also, so when you were lying on the ground after Billy Bremner, after you yeah, fell, you know it was Billy Bremner. Yeah. You go, oh, it was Billy. <laughs> Just look around for confirmation. <laughs> Something that feels quite eighties and nineties was I remember how much footballers used to gaffer tape the ankles and socks mm. really tightly, particularly lower division fullbacks. It somehow helped them thwack the ball. I think Stuart Pearce probably used to do that. Yeah, as well. it, but it's it's now gone beyond that. Where where 
modern day footballers tend to cut holes in socks. Have you seen that? Because well, supposedly the socks are too tight on their on their calf muscles or, or something like that, and and they've started cutting holes in their socks, so they they sort of appear like Swiss cheese. These you think you get tailor made socks? Yeah, when you, as a footballer, yeah. you think you get some like well, especially when you've got like personally made uh, football boots. And, and as we're in that body area, the roll down <laughs> sock, the Steve Claridge. Mm. That used to say something about a player just as having his shirt out. Yeah, with less so with Steve Claridge though, because you remember in the old olden times, well you don't remember in the old times, David Thomas and people like that, QPR Burnley, when they had their socks rolled down, they didn't have shin pads on. There was a famous German player, Hans-Peter Briegel, who was a sort of rampaging um, fullback. He was also immense, built like a discus throw, I'm sure Barry Davis would have said. And he, he always wore his socks rolled right down, and he had inc- and very short shorts, incredibly muscular legs. He had. And, and I remember that Ron Atkinson once said, Hans-Peter Briggs, he looks like he's off on a hike, he said. <laughs> but there's a, there's a player at Carlisle, Harry McCurdy, and he, he did have his, he did use of his socks rolled down, but he had shin pads on, because obviously it's compulsory now to wear shin pads. But I noticed that now he has his socks rolled up again. So obviously he's been maybe he's been told off by someone. Some players are trying to get around that though. Like Tony Cruz, um, he doesn't wear proper shin pads. He sort of basically has like folded up bits of, of toilet tissue, which he puts because because the regulations are that you have to wear some sort of shin pad. But it's oh, very, doesn't. It's, it's, very it's a bit. Oh, yeah. Right. So he he must think that somehow shin pads weigh a professional athlete down too much to for him to perform his, his role in the team so he, he sort of he seems to fold up like um toilet tissue and put that down his, down his socks, socks instead well, which, is a, very, which the... is a very sort of five aside tuesday night thing to thing to do yeah put a, yeah, put a couple of magazines uh, yeah. could have put a newspaper yeah. like a boy like a boy who's about to be beaten by, <laughs> by the headmaster in an old film to <laughs> so put a newspaper or a record down the back of his shorts <laughs> Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. It's time then for Record Breakers, the section of the podcast in which we discuss a record from the wonderful 45football.com website. Harry, what's your selection this time? Well, on a very early podcast, we did talk about managers throwing their hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, is a, this is a record about a, a manager who could literally have thrown his hat in the ring, Helmut Schoen, the manager of Germany who was, and it's called The Man in the Cap. It's sort of it's very very sentimental. It reminds me of one, uh, at Cologne, they they the, the fans sing a song before the game to the tune of the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. And when I was there, the, I was there was a German journalist sitting next to me in the press section. And when they started singing it, he said, "It's a good job you did not speak German because if you could understand the words of this, it would make you vomit." <laughs> Tom, what's your own pop pick? Uh, so I've, I've gone local for this one, um, and it's uh, if it's Wednesday, it must be Wembley by the Hillsborough Crew, a title which couldn't be further from the truth these days. Um, but, it, 
but it was uh, written for the 1993 FA Cup final um, in a season we got to both finals and played the semi-final at Wembley um, and it, there's so many different elements of this song it, it's about six different genres of song uh, at the same time it includes a, a, a rapping of uh, player names and also a Barmy Army chant uh, which is obligatory for Sheffield Wednesday songs um, but I think most interestingly it was written and produced by Martin Ware of uh, Heaven 17 <laughs> and uh, the Human League who sits about five rows in front of me at Hillsborough, but I've never actually said hello. Um, and the voice, I think, is Ian Reddington, um, who's an actor uh, who played Vernon Tomlin in Coronation Street. Oh, I love and, that. Uh, uh, chief clown in Doctor Who. Um, Vernon was, sang the brilliant song to Liz called The Mason's Arms that I recommend anyone with a sense of humour looks up on their YouTube to well, fill their he, days. He, he's used his singing abilities to great use with this song. And, and the disc featured uh, a squad lineup in front of the cop, uh, but they're all wearing sunglasses and uh, wearing in the goalkeeper tops are uh, Martin Waring in Reddington, I believe. And, weirdly, just the final thing on this song, because I, I know about it, when I was researching it, I found it quite an obscure website which lists Steve Van Zandt uh, of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band or Silvio off The Sopranos as a co-writer, and I, ju- I don't think that's right. You think that's I don't it? think that. I think that might be a mistake on the internet, which I believe happens occasionally. Um, but I thought maybe I'll, I'll finally say hello to Martin Ware and, and ask him because if it's true, then it's, it makes it's the a song good even better. Gambit, isn't it? Yeah. When you meet <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Martin, you know, remember that song you, you wrote and produced um, a, a long time ago now? <laughs> you can pretend that you remember, because he was deputy manager in a co-op, wasn't he, in Sheffield? Was Martin Way, yeah. yeah. And Glenn Gregory the same, uh, was also deputy manager at the same branch of the co-op. So that's where they met. And you that's where they met. That's, that's that's where you could bring that up, you could pretend you recognised yeah. it from the co-op. <laughs> Didn't you used to be deputy manager of the co-op? And before I was born. Before I was born. If you could get in in that way, then you wouldn't think you just you know knew him as a pop star. You <laughs> think you're just weird. My own choice this time is Push Du Travau by Joseph Buska, player with Sparta Prague from 1969. I think this is the first song we've had that you could slow dance to at the school disco. So getting in that romantic vibe like the previous podcast. It's interesting that Buska was thinking so romantically about football just after the Prague spring of 1968. I don't think he was there might be some hidden message in it. Like Perhaps there is. One of those things that the Czechs did, <laughs> subverting things. Well, the title means I'll walk through the pitch. I don't know if that's to you, to, to, a, to a woman, through, because through walking the, through it, it as well, yeah. not, well, not just over translation it. On. <laughs> Maybe it's been dug up by wild pigs. <laughs> well, the cover does have Joseph in a dinner suit near to the centre circle, with two ladies dancing and a third on the ground. She has a football and is pointing towards the penalty area, but looking towards the dugout. <laughs> I think that's all. Take this like some weird Freudian Is she on the ground trying to get through the pitch? Is that what she's doing? She's pointing to the well, penalty yeah. area. She looks to me as if her boyfriend's just arrived and she's looking she's like she's been caught hanging around a football ground on a Wednesday afternoon. And so I worry what happened next to poor Joseph. Je te 
been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. 